Welcome to Restore Gospel Podcast. Welcome back to Restore Gospel Podcast. I forgot where we were for a minute. <laughs> and you're Mike Barrett. And you're Corey Stark. <laughs> Thank you. We are coming at you from Independence, Missouri. Two friends having casual conversation about the things of eternity. We welcome you into that conversation. I am, I'm already excited, Corey. I don't even want to delay because last episode we left off talking about what does the Book of Mormon teach about plainness uh, from the aspect of Enos and his experience with God and his desire for the plain and precious word of God to go forth to his people in the last days and, or, you know, after he's gone from this earth. And then we talked about God's plan and how that would happen. And it doesn't end with um, the Gentiles, um, the, what we may say, the restoration or the Christians, the Gentile Christians. It ends with um, actually going back to the house of Israel but uh, we talked a little bit in Second Nephi 11 about Nephi. And what did he glory in, Corey? Oh, he gloried in this Hebrew word, which was sod, which translates from the rabbi's definition of the word plain. Or, or not sod, the uh, pis. Uh, oh, pis. I got it wrong. Listen to our last episode where <laughs> I didn't make the mistake. But yeah. So last time we talked about this kind of four different classifications of, uh, of scripture according to the Hebrew thought. And the, the simplest level was the Peshat. That was the plain or the simple of scripture. And that's what, that's what Nephi. He glories in plainness. Yeah. And he actually says in Nephi chapter 11, I give unto you a prophecy according to the spirit which is in me, wherefore I shall prophesy according to the plainness which has been with me from when, from the time that I came out of Jerusalem with my father. The Lord was going to destroy Jerusalem because of its wickedness, and Lehi was prophesying. You get it together, people. You know, the Lord is not happy. I don't know what was going on there, but whatever it was, it wasn't the plain, precious word of God having the ability to change hearts any longer. And Mm -hmm. so Nephi says, from the time I left Jerusalem, he's had this plainness with him. And his soul delights in plainness. Why? Because my people can learn from it. Unto my people that they may learn. That they may learn. That they may learn. And so we find ourselves back in the... 11th chapter of 2nd Nephi, and take us away, my friend. Well, I'm excited, too. This topic is just it, it just the culmination of so many things. Uh, when Enos is praying that his people, and he's not the only one. God even tells him, he said, many people have prayed what you're praying for, but he prays that the word will come back to his people. How does that happen? Where do we fit in? 2nd book of Nephi 11 tells the story, and it does it in plainness, this thing that Nephi delights in and that we do too. So if it was any other way, Mike, I don't think we'd <laughs> we'd be able to even have a podcast, right? We, right. we, we have to look for the plain things. Yeah. My, I'm a man of simple understanding, Corey. It goes back to my roots. <laughs> so in this second book of Nephi, chapter 11, uh, Nephi has just completed quoting uh, several chapters of Isaiah now, I'm not going to go through all those right now, but it, it, the point is that he's explaining to his people 
what Isaiah meant. And what Isaiah saw were the very things that Nephi explains. But sometimes reading Isaiah, you might not realize that's what he was talking about. But so how he starts this story is this condition that his own people were in. And and he says, I'm going to jump down to um, uh, this manner of the Jews. Verse 9, second book of Nephi, chapter 11, verse 9. He says, I haven't taught my children after the manner of the Jews. He said, I lived in Jerusalem. I knew about the regions round about. I knew about the judgments of God. Um, but he says, but I'm not teaching my children the ways of the Jews because those ways weren't always obvious. And he says in verse 11, I proceed with my own prophecy. So he said, this is my prophecy. These are my words. According to my plainness, in the which I know that no man can err. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> He's like, you can't make a mistake. There's no way you can get this wrong. Right? And this is important that we in the restoration understand these things. He said, you can't get this wrong. And you know what? Well, I won't go there yet, but we have gotten it wrong, and we have to relearn this. We have to learn this. This is the foundation we need to build our faith on, our hope for the future, our walk. So what he states, though, is he says in verse 12, he said, if they weren't obvious to you, he said, nevertheless, in the days that the prophecies of Isaiah shall be fulfilled, men shall know of a surety at the times when they come to pass. He said, you'll get it then. You'll understand it then. He said, and there are... All these words are of worth to the children of men, and he that thinks they're not or supposes that they're not, he said, I'm going to speak particularly, and I'm going to confine my words to my people. Um, He says, I know that these will be of worth to them in the last days, and they'll understand it then. And he said, wherefore, for their good have I written them. So verse 14 kind of sets this Uh, the context for what's going to happen. He says, I'm writing this to my people so that they know when Isaiah's prophecies are fulfilled. He said, I'm going to explain it to you right now. You'll understand it then. Um, So he starts now in the 15th verse by talking about Jews who have been destroyed. And he says, as one generation hath been destroyed among the Jews because of iniquity, even so have they been destroyed from generation to generation according to their iniquities, and never hath any of them been destroyed, save it were foretold them by the prophets of old. So in this, he's, he's setting up the fact that the Jews have seen destruction, they've seen parallel, peril, and God has always told them about it when it was going to happen. He said it's never happened without God telling them. Now, whether they paid attention or understood, you know, that was to be seen. But um, they hardened their hearts in verse 18, and according to my prophecy, he said, they've been destroyed, save those that were carried away captive into Babylon. He said, so he knows what happened back in the hometown of Jerusalem. He said, unless they were broken off, God broke off branches for righteous purposes, Lehi being one. He said, unless they were carried away into Babylon as slaves with Daniel and the others, they're killed. He said, they're gone. So he can he, he first starts to set up What's going to happen to his people that were in Jerusalem? And this is something that Isaiah was uh, talking about. He said, And now I speak because of the Spirit which is in me, and notwithstanding that they have been carried away, they shall return again and possess the land of Jerusalem. Wherefore, they shall be restored again to the lands of their inheritance. So what Nephi sees right now 
is this 70-year captivity that happened after Lehi leaves Jerusalem. The Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar and his people come in. They overwhelm Jerusalem. They take some slaves. That's where we get the story of Daniel and others who live in that captive period out of the land of Jerusalem. Um, at this time, Lehi's family has come to America. And other branches were broken off then too. We don't always have their stories though. We will in a day to come. But he sees that after a time, they come back. And to put it in context, that's the story of Nehemiah. It happens after Queen Esther and all this, and they rebuild Jerusalem. So, But he doesn't dwell on that. He says they're going to return again. But in verse 21, he just simply states they're going to have wars and rumors of wars. And this, he jumps ahead several hundred years. He says, and when the day cometh that the only begotten of the Father, yea, even the Father of heaven and earth shall manifest himself unto them in the flesh. Behold, they will reject him. Now, I'm going to stop right there and remind us of what Nephi has started all his writings by saying. I'm, he says, I'm speaking to you in plainness, right? He says, I'm speaking so you cannot make a mistake, so you cannot err. And so what does he just say? He says, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. They're going to come back. And who's going to come down and manifest himself? He says, yea, even the Father of heaven and earth, this is verse 21, even the Father of heaven and earth shall manifest himself unto them in the flesh. Behold, they will reject him because of priestcrafts, hardness of hearts, stiffness of necks. They will crucify him. So that gathering back is prior to Christ being crucified, not yes. not not a last days gathering back, but we're in that time period. Correct. He's seeing the Old Testament regathering. Um, a little bit more context to the history: when Lehi departed Jerusalem, Jerusalem still was under um, well the temple that Solomon built. You know, when they talk about the temple in Jerusalem, that still existed. It was crushed and ransacked and ravished by the Babylonians. You know, there wasn't a stone left upon a stone. It was, you know, a generation later when Nehemiah comes back and they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and eventually another temple is built. But that temple never had the power and the glory. And they, 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 they had it, but it wasn't like it was before. And then eventually that one's ransacked. Then Herod builds a temple later. So you get these temples built upon temples. But this original temple and these original people, right, they come back in the Old Testament times. It's not the regathering yet. Now Nephi talks right. about it later. It's the Old Testament return after this initial um, destruction. But it's interesting that he, he only gives a sentence to that, and he jumps right ahead to this. He said, but after they come back, he said, the Father of heaven and earth shall manifest himself unto them in the flesh, and they're going to crucify him. And Nephi's explaining these things where he says, so you cannot err, so you cannot misunderstand these things. So that's the very first thing he tells his people. He said, Jerusalem got destroyed. They'll come back. And then God's coming down. And then he, he explains why this is important later. But verse 22, after he's laid in a sepulcher for the space of three days, he'll rise from the dead with healing in his wings. And all they that believe on his name shall be saved in the kingdom of God. And wherefore, <laughs> here's that word again, my soul delighteth to prophesy concerning him. For I have seen his day, and my heart doth magnify his holy name. 
Isn't that something you know, he delights in plainness and he delights to prophesy concerning this creator who is going to die for us. I did a little word study on that word magnify because that's something you see sometimes. My my heart doth magnify his holy name. It means to make great or to praise or to grow or to promote. Can you imagine your heart wanting to promote his holy name? Nothing of yourself, nothing of your own mm-hmm. your own pride or your own doing, but to magnify his holy name, to make great, you know, to tell others, to show others, to promote him to others. Out of your heart, though. Yes. Not yes. even. No other motive. No, just out of your heart. I just want to, I want to magnify his name. Exactly. Exactly. It's like, I've. I've got one less day now that I woke up this morning, but it's like, how can I magnify him? How can I magnify his name? Mm-hmm. So this, I, I love how Nephi takes this, and he's he's so concise. I mean, he could he tells the story. If you read it through, it would only take you a few minutes for an average reader to get all the points he's taken that we're going to take longer in our podcast to discuss, just because that's how we like to do it. But the what he summarizes are the major bullet points in his time and in the time to come that he wants his people to understand that Isaiah was talking about. So he sees Jerusalem's destroyed in his day and people return shortly after his day. Uh, he sees the father of heaven come down and be crucified by his people. And then he sees that whoever believes in him will have uh, eternal life. But now verse 24, he continues the prof- prophetic description and behold, it shall come to pass that after the Messiah hath risen from the dead and hath manifested himself unto his people, unto as many as will believe on his name, behold, Jerusalem shall be destroyed again. Now, this is putting another piece of history in context. When Ju- when Jesus was with his disciples in Jerusalem, you know, this was, you know, 100 years, almost 500 years after this Babylonian time where the people returned. But Jesus tells his people in the very day, he said, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed again. He said, not many days hence. This is Matthew 24. He said, there won't be a stone left upon another. Armies are going to come. It's going to be bad. Make sure your flight's not on the Sabbath. We think this is somehow a description of the last days, but I really think it was Jesus telling the warning the Jews of the day because they were asking him, tell us concerning the signs, right? Well, This is what happens then. Now Nephi writes, Jerusalem will be destroyed again, and this is the destruction right after Jesus' day in about 70 AD. This is when Caesar comes down from Rome and he plows Jerusalem under. The Romans had been occupying, you know, this is is why you have Pilate and other people who are the, they're sort of the occupiers, like in a political sense of Jerusalem. It's because the Roman Empire was expanding its grip on the world, and it had overtaken Jerusalem, just like back in uh, Nephi's day, uh, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar was about to overtake Jerusalem. There was four different time periods. There were the Babylonians, there were the Persians, there were the Greeks, and that time period isn't talked about so much in the Bible, but then there was the Romans. The Romans. Right? Now, this is the Romans. Can you imagine that? Like, you know, the Romans come into town, and I guess— they were nice enough not to just obliterate off the Jews, but rather than that, they they just kind of like molded into their society and said, you can do certain things your way, but there's certain things that you have yeah. to do our way, and you're going to pay taxes to us. Right. And, they wanted they wanted the financial benefit of owning the people more than anything. But, but they was, weren't just like, 
they weren't just in Rome making this happen. Like we would say, it's not just politicians in Washington, you know, declaring taxes be paid to them, but they were like right there in the, in, in and amongst them in the city. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, and, patrolling and the, the streets and, and. And this all plays into the story of Jesus because the, the rabbis knew that Jesus was loved by the people and they of themselves couldn't, uh, they wouldn't win the argument if they tried to convince the people that, that, uh, Jesus was a false prophet. So they had to get the Romans involved to say, hey, we've got this guy, and he's kind of like setting himself up. We think he's going to overtake your government. Um, why don't you do something to him? Oh, yeah, you've got that little crucifixion thing you do. Why don't <laughs> yeah. you do that to him, right? You know, the crucifixion was what the Romans did to terrorize the people, right? Yeah, what a what a crazy way to live. Can you yeah. imagine going out to the store today and just having some other country, you know, patrolling the streets and— um, you know, allowing you to go about your business, but not really always under their thumb or under their watchful eye. Or, yeah, yeah. Or, but, you know, so here's here's the story of imperialism through the years is why, you know, you have people who, you know, if you lived in India, maybe you like the English or maybe you hate the English, you know, because they came here. Or maybe you live in Afghanistan today and you see our troops. And I'm, I'm not trying to make a political statement for right. or against, right? But I'm just saying it still happens today. And it, it always usually happens as the result of war or conquest. You know, some government was bad, some government was maybe not so bad. I don't know that any of them were ever good, but for some reason, you know, someone's army won out, right? Yeah. And now they're occupying and maybe they're restoring peace, you know, whatever. Uh, it's complex, but it still happens today. It took know? me many years though, growing up to understand, to, not that I understand it fully, but to even have a better picture of what was going on. Like I, I thought Herod was a, was a Roman guy, you know, mm -hmm. until I realized though he was a Jew, but not a good not a good Jew and, and working, you know, he was out for himself. Yep. 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 Uh, it's just the culture. And anyway, well, so interesting for some of our younger viewers, maybe just to, to think about what that was like. Yeah, exactly. And the, and it still is part of our world today, although it's manifest a little bit differently. Um, so, and then to have someone tell you this town you live in, you know, independence, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm going to be killed. I don't know if he said that then right now, but, um, it's going to be destroyed again. Yeah, and not, exactly. nothing will be left here. Right, and and what's interesting too is that the the canon of scripture, the collection of records that make what we have been told is the Bible, does not have all the records that were ever written. There were a lot of historians who are real people, like Josephus and others, who wrote about the time period and have their own writings, and they have been handed down, but their writings aren't necessarily part of the Bible. Well, what's interesting is that I know I've mentioned from time to time a, a book I came across a couple of years ago, this Lost Books of the Bible or Forgotten Books of Eden. It's kind of a long title, but it has collections of books that at one point in time were part of the canon of Scripture or were at least regarded by the people of the day as equally valid with Paul's writings or whatever, right? But they just weren't included in Scripture. What's in that? are letters that were apparently written by Pilate and um, Caesar Augustus back and forth talking about what had happened after the crucifixion. And and Pilate uh, suffers death by, uh, it's not included in our Bible, but historically he was later killed by Caesar who was back in Rome, his own people because of the insurrection that was created by when he heard about the fact that Jesus was crucified and he allowed it you know there were people back in the in Rome who thought Jesus was really at least a prophet and maybe not the son of god but 
it was a punishment on everyone, even even some of the Romans who were in charge there. It was like Caesar sends in the armies and wipes everyone out, and and, and but the Jews specifically were being punished by Rome for what they thought was killing the Son of God. So they had already believed that Jesus was true, and this this is not talked about. And, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts, they didn't live then, but, well, maybe they did, I guess. But the, the point is there is history that talks about this destruction of Jerusalem that happened about 70 years after Jesus was born in other books. And so, again, Nephi sees this, getting back to the text of Second Nephi 11. <laughs> I, I love your lost. I love when you bring those in. As Those were some fascinating episodes. Oh, my gosh. And that you found so, so many... I really like that ancient jerky recipe you found in there. That, that's really taking it up a notch. I mean, people yeah, are yeah. amazed when that they was, try That it. was the camel recipe, I think. Oh, wow, yeah. yeah. Camel and goat, I think we mixed together, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but it's been good. <laughs> well, so, all right, so. Back to back to Second Nephi 11. So Nephi is gleaning all this information from Isaiah's writings. It's right under the nose of the people there. They don't get it. They don't understand it. But he's explaining kind of giving us the major bullet points in plain words. So he says, hey, Jerusalem will be destroyed again. This is verse 24. And woe unto them that fight against God and the people of his church. So Jerusalem, the Jews were destroyed for fighting against this doctrine of Christ that was, you know, kind of being denounced by them. But now this is where this story um, takes another turn. Wherefore, the Jews shall be scattered among all nations. See, they had been taken to Babylon before, you know, five or 600 years before this time. And now they're going to go to all nations, and they're not going to have a homeland. This this starts the the next chapter in the Jewish life where politically there was no place to call home. You know, Jerusalem was just this desert land now with no even remnant of a city, just rubble. And, and they were scattered. It says Babylon will be destroyed. Because... I don't want to point that out. The first time they were taken, the first time Jerusalem was ransacked, as a group of people, they were taken captive into Babylon, into the city, but they were, they still existed. Yeah. And we knew, and then they they came back as a group of people through a period of time. Yeah, the next generation kind of came back, right, seven years later. But this time it says, it's not going to be like Rome grabs all the Jews and brings them to Rome and uh, or you know or they go to you know they're in Egypt as slaves. This time it says they will be scattered among all nations, all nations, the no. entire earth, and even Babylon that captured them before would be destroyed. Exactly. They they just went to town, so to speak. I mean, you know, raising the towns. But you know, you bring up something interesting. Um, you said they didn't take people historically. Actually, they did. Um, if you can go to Rome today. And I have a I have a picture of it um, just outside of the Colosseum, the Colosseum, which is you know people think oh my gosh this is this amazing thing of architecture. It was built on the back of Jewish slaves. All right, it was built on the back of slaves mm. that were taken from Jerusalem, thousands of them that they did for their own purposes. Um, hor- horrible things were were done to the ones that survived, but they had knowledge. They had you know they they. Um, Credit the Italians for oh how they figure out all this architecture and all these clever things. They stole a lot of it from the people that they had taken captive to. It wasn't just necessarily things they came up with on their own. So, but but I was just about to say, but there's outside of this Colosseum is Tiberius. I can't remember this name. Well, there's this arch and this this Victory Arch that still stands in Rome today. 
that has etched on the side of the arch these Romans carrying things like the menorah and these other vessels out of the temple, bringing them back to Rome. And it still exists today. <laughs> they glory in this. Yeah, I took just- a drive. I took a drive along the Missouri River this uh, just a couple of days ago with my wife. And you come to this little town of Lexington, which is, uh, you know, about 40 minutes east of Independence along the Missouri River. And it sits on the banks of the river. And somewhere in that town, there's a sign that says like, I don't know, there's like 39 or 29 historic homes in this town. And there was this old brick street I'd never gone down, but it's kind of up on the bluff. And you see these old brick homes. And I I could just picture like the time of like Washington or early, early homes from the 1800s sitting here. And um, and they, it looks like you're just watching a movie of colonial mm-hmm. times. Uh, the brick streets, these old brick homes. I can just see people out there, you know, washing laundry by hand. You're like, oh, these are so old. And I'm thinking 1800s, not, you know, 200 years ago, yeah, maybe. Yeah, and now we're talking or shortly thereafter. Yeah, I just... I would love to to go see that. I, I know some people have traveled. And seen, you've probably seen some of that, right? Well, yeah, I've never been to Israel, but I, I just saw a thing on online where you can get a round trip ticket to Tel Aviv for a good price. And I meant to mention this to you at, off air. We'll talk about it. Maybe that has to be our next road trip, right? Um, we'll have to bring portable recorder, though. Yeah, really. Well, so so in the world today, there's there are lots of things that are still evidence of this time period from a couple thousand years ago. And so I, um, I, it's just amazing how this, this couldn't have been consolidated in the minds of, in the mind of a New York farm boy who had just left his teenage years to get all this stuff and understand it and get it straight. I mean, there's just too much history and everything. It, but no one under, I mean, we have to kind of scratch our heads and pick, figure out now who's this talking about when, but for, but for someone yeah. to just condense this so well, there, no one ever had all no, this stuff. Anywhere. Th- this book is, is the work of God. It's just not, there's just, it's just not man-made. Yeah. To take, without Isaiah's, a doubt. Right, to take Isaiah's words and explain them and to get it all historically correct and accurate and all this stuff. It's, it's amazing. I mean, this is this gift we've got. So so he sees them scattered. He sees them scattered to all nations, back to verse 25. Um, and he sees the Jews will be scattered by other nations after they've been scattered, and the Lord hath scourged them by other nations for the space of many generations. All right, so now Nephi is beautiful writing he condenses it so well yeah so we're looking at 100 AD you know around that time going forth they'll be scourged from generation to generation by by all by many gener- by many nations many nations it's not just the romans at this point in time but notice where he takes us in the end of verse 26 even down from generation unto generation until they shall be persuaded to believe in Christ the son of god until until that's that's a huge huge. word right there because that's that's the shift that word until shows this shift of things that are going to be seen by our eyes things that are going to be comprehended the scourging of the jews from generation to generation and then you have to highlight that word until and what happens after that what changes is this exactly what you said it is read it persuaded they shall be persuaded to believe in Christ, the Son of God, and the atonement, which is infinite for all mankind. And then keep reading 27. 
and then that day shall come. When that, when that, and when that day shall come that they shall believe in Christ and worship the Father in his name with pure hearts and clean hands and look not forward anymore for another Messiah. And then at that time, the day will come that it must needs be expedient that they should believe these things. And just keep reading 28 because they broke it into verses and it's one continuous thought. There's that awkward language that they use. <laughs> yeah. And the Lord will set his hand again the second time to restore his people from their lost and fallen state. Right, and that's where a period should go. So all that, he says, when they, <laughs> he just summarizes at least a couple thousand years, scattered among all nations, scourged by many nations, until what happens first? Till they're persuaded to believe in Christ. Then the, the real Messiah, not a false Messiah, not any other Messiah, says then the Lord will set his hand a second time to recover them. So there's an event. This is why it's so important that our people in the Restoration understand the real progression of things here. Nephi is telling us, he said, I'm telling you, plain so you can't err. He said, the, the Jews are going to be scattered and they're going to come back to Christ. And when that happens, God sets forth his hand a second time to understand when to, to, to bring them back. And not, I don't want to go there right now because we've done it, but this is where Isaiah 11 comes in. Isaiah 11 explains the second time, and it's in the 11th verse. But the first five verses talk about Jesus. The second five verses of Isaiah 11 talk about Zion. When Jesus is in Zion, then he says, then I'm going to set forth my hand a second time. Now, that's. This, I just saw this in verse 27. This, this is part of the... I think, as you've shown me, this Hebrew repetitiveness, and it doesn't sound like it's very good English, but it says, the day shall come that they shall, here it is, believe in Christ and worship the Father in his name with pure hearts and clean hands, and look not forward anymore for another Messiah. It's, now, these these next, two, these next two lines repeat that. It doesn't sound like good English. It sounds like you're going to be moving forward in thought, but you're not. They're going to repeat the same thing. And then at that time... The day will come that it must needs be expedient that they should believe these things. Yes. yes. So it's it's such an awkward statement because we're in English we're ready to move along down the story, but it's just it's repeating itself again that they're not going to look forward anymore for Messiah. They're believing in Christ. They're worshiping Him in truth, and at that day will come. It must needs be expedient that they should believe these things. Exactly. It's just stating it once again. That day is not going to come until they believe in the Messiah and Christ and worship him. Yep. And so, exactly, exactly. This this is the exciting thing that's going to happen. This is, this is what, I mean, it, it gets me excited to think that these are things that could happen in our day, in our lifetime. But, but this is the plan of how it's been laid out. And so, when he states, when they look forward to this other Messiah, not to any other Messiah— and then specifically, he says, he will set his hand again the second time to restore his people from their lost and fallen state. Now, let's let's break this down a little bit, because um, number one, it says that they will be persuaded to believe in Christ. So I don't know what that looks like. Back in 26, it says, from generation to generation, they're being scourged until, and then this event takes place, they're persuaded to believe in Christ. And the and not just Christ, but the atonement, right? The whole, the whole uh, 
you know, a sacrifice for sin and, and to give up on the Mosaic law and, and all of the things that, that they believe, but to understand the atonement, right? That great act of mercy that, that takes the hand of justice away. So I don't know what causes them to be persuaded, but, but at some point they're, they're changed from worshiping the law of Moses still to believing in Christ. So in a sense, that is one type of restoration. Like they're being restored from their lost and fallen state when they believe in Christ, that's that but that is, could be happening anywhere at any time in any bedroom and any in any home. But but something's going to happen. I think that's physically manifest. And and see, you, you know, you touched on so many good things there when you just said it could happen anywhere in any bedroom. This is happening. We're even seeing this. This is some of these videos we played. Right, Jesus one saying, for Israel. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. They're saying Jesus appeared to me in my room. You know, I believe in Jesus now. God's. These are real things happening, and it's part of this unfolding where people are believing in Jesus It's who have been brought up in false traditions under Judaism to, to think that Jesus wasn't the Son of God, wasn't the Messiah, wasn't the infinite eternal atonement. And it's starting to make sense. And Jesus says, and, and Nephi writes, this is the sign. He said, when these things start to happen, then the Lord sets his hand a second time to restore his people. We've, And now I'm wondering... Since that verse 7 repeats itself, it's, it's continually repeating this thing that's happening. Is verse 28 just also just giving us another uh, another uh, explanation, like once again, of the same thing? Because when I first see this, the Lord will set his hand again the second time to restore his people. I'm picturing like him gathering people, but I don't know that it's necessarily saying that. Maybe it's just re-emphasizing what it's just previously said. Well, I mean, what do you think? Spiritual, physical? I think um, I think all the above. But here's one of the way one way to look at it and learn the information. What's unfolding in front of us? There are a lot of parallels, but there's this is the center of a chiasm. And what I want to point out just briefly, it's it's easier to see these things in print than it is to describe where this second where he sets his hand the second time to restore his people, it's right at the center. I know these are easier to see in print than they are to talk about them on a podcast, but notice what's on either side of this. The previous verses talk about how when that day comes when they believe in Christ and not any other Messiah, that's in verse 27. We'll look down in verse 31. Um, It talks about how his words will come to judge them, to teach them of the true Messiah who was rejected, that they need not look anymore for another Messiah to come. So verse 31 and 32 parallel verse 27. And then when he talks about these words of the prophets, jumping down like verse 35, who cometh 600 years from the time my father left Jerusalem, well, that parallels back in verse 24, 25, 26, when he says, God will come down, they'll crucify him, and you know, but he's going to give life to anyone who believes on his name. Well, that parallels again verse thirty-six, where he's talking about Jesus coming down and he being the Son of God. So, so from verse twenty, I don't know, twenty-ish down through verse thirty-six is this beautiful chiasm, which in the center of it is this setting his hand the second time, and also this. Uh, parallel idea that he is the infinite eternal sacrifice of all mankind. Do you have that written up anywhere as I, a chiasm? I, I can. I've got I've got a hundred of them. I've got I got to put on restore gospel. Uh, maybe adding that to the show notes for today. That's a good idea. I'll do that. I want 
just uh, so our listeners know, uh, Corey has revamped the Restore Gospel. It's a little simpler to use, although it may take a little getting used to, but you can go in there. And um, there's a heading for podcasts. There's a heading for study, where there's all kinds of study topics. And then there's a heading for a scripture search, which you're used to. And once you click on one of those, the menu changes to the left of the website. You'll see when you go there. And it's very simple to use, user-friendly, especially for your mobile devices. So just a little plug there. But we do have show notes attached for each one of our, not each one of our, but when we have something, you can go on there and look at the episode number. So maybe we can get up the chiasm up there. That'll be easy for people to. Yeah, you bet I'll get it on there. Oh, and I just got to say 30 seconds. Uh, Appreciate anyone's patience. If they were using Restored Gospel this week and maybe it was Thursday-ish or so, it was down mysteriously. Got hit by Russian spamware. Really, there's there's servers all around the world that do nothing but just try to cause a uh, grief for other websites out there. And it uh, the website got overwhelmed by uh, by some malware out in the world there. But anyhow, it's up and running again. That is so, crazy. Yeah, it is. It's too bad. It's but you know what? No power of hell is going to overcome God's purpose. So we'll just endure, and uh, through <laughs> prayer and technology, we'll keep it going. But so, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll write up this chiasm. There's there's many of them, actually, throughout his writings. But notice where, where he goes with this. So he's going to set his hand a second time, this is back in verse 28, to recover his people from their lost and fallen state. Now, we in the Restoration think, well, yeah, that's us. But it isn't. It isn't. It isn't. It begins with us, but it isn't all about us. And this is where the Book of Mormon is very clear, plain, as Nephi uses the word. Um, this is how what he says is going to happen. This is going to be a great and marvelous work, verse 29, among the children of men. Wherefore, he shall bring forth his words unto them, which words shall judge them at the last day. For they shall be given for the purpose of convincing them of the true Messiah who was rejected by them unto the convincing of them that they need not look forward to any other Messiah to come. Well, right now, if you go to that One for Israel or websites like it, um, you'll find that the Jews are reading their own, their own scriptures from the Bible, and Isaiah 53 is one of the scriptures that they're using, which had been removed from some Jewish Bibles, in fact, over generations. And they're showing how the scriptures from the Old Testament point to this Messiah who was, to so many Jews, just a historical figure who was kind of a bad guy. And they're they're saying, no, this is it. This is happening right now in our day. And we can't kind of, as Restoration, poo-poo that or say, that, oh, that's mamby-pamby, because their testimony of Jesus is real, and there's powerful testimonies coming right now. Uh, if it wasn't for the Reformers in the 1800s, perhaps Joseph never would have came to the point of seeking out the Lord in his truth. Really? So they set, a lot of those early ones set the stage for, uh, you know, things have gone astray in the word and, and this isn't the true story and this isn't the, this isn't what it's all about. You know, our relationship with God and everything, you know, the church has changed things and they started rebelling against that and saying, we need to reform. We need to get back to the, you know, the basics to the original intent and what, what Jesus did well, it's, it's, I, I see, you know, any of these, anyone right now coming to the, to the Lord that's, that's been a, a Jew and, and coming to believe in Christ is just the foundation which is being laid for all kinds of things to happen. I mean, that's a huge step. That's it's a huge, huge first step. It's huge. And, and you know, it's, it's hard. Well, a lot it's of the, them the are, most important step. Yeah. I mean, the rest is going to fill in for them, but the th- <laughs> I should say a first step. That is the step. They're coming to Christ. Yeah, I, I I watched a testimony of a Jewish man on 
on YouTube, and this is just recent, who said, you know, I've been disowned by my family, my inheritance that I expected. He came from a very, very wealthy family, has nothing. This guy was living on the beach with no money for a while, all because he found Jesus. And he said, I can't let go of this. This is precious. This is truth. He's he's had family spit on him. He's, he's even had them just say, just sign this, say you don't believe in Jesus, and then we'll we'll write you back into the will. He's like, I can't do it. You know, this is this is happening now. This is happening yeah. right now. That's crazy. Uh, I, I will never know what that's like, whether that's a blessing or a cursing. But just uh, to be to be brought up to not believe in Jesus Christ, and then all of a sudden have your eyes open that God came down and walked among us. Mm. That's a different kind of God that you find in any other religion. Yes, yes, that he not only walked upon us, but gave up his life in the most torturous way for for his people. That is an act of love that is not available in any other religion in the history of the world mm. Mm. that I know of. No, that's a great, great point. Yeah, what what religion teaches that God became the ultimate sacrifice for humanity? Yeah, so to have your whole life uh, philosophy, your whole life's existence shift from a culture of shame and honor and a culture of, uh, of familial passing down of blessings and not believing in uh, Jesus Christ at all, but in this ancient God of fire in a bush, you know, to all of a sudden he's this man that came down from heaven and walked among us. And then to watch someone just say, I can never give that up. That's the most precious thing in the world to me. And then I, I always self-examine saying, but it's not precious to me because I've always had it, you know? And then you go back to the garden. Like, was God ever precious to Adam and Eve because it's all they knew, but they didn't know the opposite? So it's just a big circle. You know, God said this would happen. And, Mike, you bring up uh, so many interesting points. You know, there's one place in the King James Version where the word plainness is translated into the word English. And you know what it, where it is? It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and Paul is saying, hey, I use great plainness of speech, and I, I could read it, but I'm just going to kind of paraphrase sure. it, where he says, not like Moses who put a veil over his face and Israel couldn't understand, but get, notice the connection to everything you just said. Paul was prophesying of what's happening here. He said, when the day comes that they realize that all this stuff of their law, ever since the burning bush and everything else, and the sacrifices of the lambs, the unblemished lambs, all these things, once they realize that all that pointed towards God, the eternal and infinite sacrifice, who came down and became as us so we could become like him, that's this revelation that the Jews are coming to because their whole life they've had the physical They've never understood the spiritual, what it meant. But he said, the day is going to come. And, and Paul writes this, um, and he says, uh, I, I will read this, if I can get to it real quick. He said, he says this, um, <laughs> it's got to be here somewhere. Uh, well, I'll find it in a minute. He, he says, when you take off this veil and you realize that it's all pointing towards Christ— that's when things change. He said, this is going to happen for Israel when they all come back and realize that everything of their culture, which they thought was the pinnacle, these laws we have of Moses, mm -hmm. these washings, these sacrifices, when they realize that it's exactly what the Book of Mormon was teaching in Alma 16, where he says, 
This is the whole meaning of the law. Every whit of it points towards this great and last sacrifice, and this sacrifice will be the Son of God, infinite and eternal for all mankind. When they come to that, he's, they can't let go of it because now it makes their whole culture and their heritage make sense in a way that it never did before, and they can't let go of that truth. <clears throat> That's amazing. And, and so we see little pictures of this in the Book of Mormon, whether it be Alma or Enos or people coming and being forgiven and cleansed by the power of Jesus. You're going to see this among a nation of people. Uh, that's all I can surmise from the, from the word here that that's going to happen. I hope that that reminds us Gentiles who are brought up. It's so weird. We're brought up in Christianity, knowing Christianity, but, uh, but repeatedly uh, having Christianity be hijacked by all kinds of other things as not, we watch not plainness, not plainness, but as we watch the plain, true relationship of the Jews with their culture come to Christ, I hope it stimulates, encourages, uh, um, helps us as well get to the plain message of Christianity. Yes, which is uh, you know loving like Jesus loved, to be able to love one another like the simple message, just to be able to love one another like Jesus loved, and knowing that. That only happens by the gift of the Holy Spirit uh, being present in your life, and 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 then that involves you know the work of submission and obedience and um, seeking with everything you have, right? All of those things. But but man, when our goal keeps getting screwed up to it something does. else and keep getting hijacked away from that simple message of being transformed and having a changed heart to love like Jesus loved His, his great commandment: love one another like I've loved you. Amen. Amen. That's that's, that's but that's the glory to live this life for, right? But it seems like some of these Jews having these testimonies, they are coming to that so much so that they'll give up everything to know him. Paul wrote this, Second Corinthians three. He said, This is the only place where the word plainness is used. And he said, um, he said, seeing that we have such great hope, we use great plainness of speech, not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel couldn't steadfastly look to the end of that which was abolished. In other words, when he was reading the law, there's this great time where they couldn't look at his face and everything. He had to put a veil up. But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil taken away in the reading of Testament, which is done away, uh, the Old Testament, which is done away in Christ. Now he makes a parallel comparison. He says, but unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their hearts. So he's comparing the veil where they couldn't see Moses to underst- and understand to now a veil on their heart when they read the Old Testament. They couldn't understand that all the Old Testament, this Torah, pointed towards Christ. And Paul says this, but unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, their hearts, the veil shall be taken away. Now, Paul is saying that, and this is what Nephi says, but magnified, where he says, when the day comes that they shall believe in Christ, worship the Father in his name, pure hearts, clean hands. He said, that's when the Lord turns back and sets his hand a second time. That's when he reveals his arm and power. This is what the world has yet to see. It's more than just, you know, the story we tell among ourselves. Of, oh, well, we just got to know this is the true church and God's going to send the kingdom and get to Jackson County now and that's it. It's like, no, God's restoring all these people to him. This is this is part of the plan that we, we've kind of failed to remind ourselves of. <sighs> Good stuff, right? Yeah. Well, let's, so we've got, let's say in the next five minutes, let's, 
let's summarize what we've been talking about most of all because I got to put a title on this this episode. <laughs> so what what are we saying here today, Corey? What are we saying? We're continuing on with the plainness of <laughs> Nephi is delighting in plainness and telling a plain story of. What the Book of Mormon? What does the Book of Mormon say about, about how his people will be restored to Christ? Right. right. Yeah. This is what he's explaining, and he, I, like I said earlier, he does it so concisely and in fewer words than we're using in our conversation. But he takes this idea of his people who had been dark and mysterious and evil, and he sees this in his culture, and he begins to explain the story of how all these covenants are going to be fulfilled, and in part of that journey. It's the return of the hearts right. of his people to God. Well, has, let's just look. Let's just step back out of the out of the scripture for a minute, and let's just and we've talked about it before, but let's summarize. Have we seen the Jews be scattered by other nations, and have we seen the Jews be scourged through generation to generation? We we know about the Holocaust that that people. You know, there's movements to say that never happened, but we know about the Holocaust. What has this played out, Corey? Have the Jews been scourged from generation to generation? Oh my gosh! And history books are full of it, and and so this story. I mean, you could take a story like the play "The Fiddler on the Roof," and you know that paints a picture of a uh, Tevia and his family who are scattered. That was just on. <laughs> if I were a rich yeah. man, da, 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 da. yeah, yeah. So. Uh, that's you know a fictitious dra- dramatization of this idea that the Jews didn't have a homeland and they were scourged forever and they were holding on to their traditions in spite of a changing world around them. But through time, um, you know, going back to the early medieval days, where you hear about these conquests that were supposedly going back to do things to Muslims who had been rising up in different places in the world. More Jews were killed by Christians in the, in those days, even than even Muslims. And and that's swept under the rug of history, but throughout the, the European domain, uh, Jews were ousted from every country they ever lived in. And, and if you watch a map it, it, to see where they started and where they went, it looks kind of like a, a whirlwind or a blender because, you know, they were in, uh, England, and then they were, had to go to France, and then they were in France, and they had to go to Spain, and then they were in Spain, and then they had to go to Austria, and then they were in Austria, and they went to Poland, and they were in Poland, they came back to Germany, and then from there they went to Russia. And you see these people just throughout generations um, split and divided, and, you know, they tried to maintain their culture, but what's interesting about this is even, you know, they, their language, you know, we think, oh, well, Jews, of course, they always spoke Hebrew. The Hebrew language was basically lost in all this because they were scourged so much. Their language, like anyone's language, would evolve, and that's where like Yiddish and some of these other kind of German uh, combination of German Hebrew became popular. It wasn't until the early 1900s this man named uh, Eliezer Ben Yehuda made this uh, push. I just he, can't believe you, you just pull that off the top of your head. Well, like you I, just remember that recently, I, know. <laughs> I just read it recently. But this, uh, he, it was in the early 1900s, made this push that Hebrew become the national language again. And whether you were living in Jerusalem or not, this encouragement, people had to learn it, okay? It wasn't like, yeah. oh, we just spoke it, we just spoke it in our own. So homes. a lot of this stuff you're sharing, uh, you know, the book that you have with uh, all, all of these, these major words, uh, what was that book? You, you quote this guy all the time, Ben. Uh, uh, oh, Jeff Benner? Jeff Benner, yeah. uh, whether it's him or whether it's the Bible Project uh, group in Portland, every uh, even the Jewish quote Hebrew people are relearning 
their history. And this is all culminating as you see, as they learn where their ancient language came from and how, what it meant. And then they put this material out. It's like, we're learning as well. They're from having, them, yeah. They're kind of learning their a renaissance or, a, or a, a rebirth of their own right language. And it's made some people more and more orthodox where they want to go back to the old mm-hmm. Testament. It's like, they're still not getting the point. Well, here's, here's the point of sharing that with Europe and the language and all this stuff. They had lost their identity, lost their culture, but the thing that they hadn't lost was this knowledge that most of their persecution was coming from so-called Christians who were trying to persecute the Jews for what they felt like was their incorrect traditions or incorrect beliefs. And if they could only come to Jesus, Martin Luther was right, the right, worst, right? right. And, and this you, was happening throughout the centuries. And you mentioned even uh, if you look at what happened on this land compared to the Holocaust, uh, if, if we believe that this land was also the tribe of Joseph, part of the Jewish, well, it uses the word Jew to refer to all of the house of Israel, how many people were killed and slaughtered here? Yeah, millions. Millions. Millions were killed here, and that's swept under the rug for, for various reasons. Um, and so wherever you see genocide in the world, you can kind of put two and two together and say, those are probably people of the House of Israel. Because it wasn't just, quote, the Jews, that one of the 12 tribes. It was the House of Israel everywhere. You've seen this in Europe and, and Africa and different places. It's all fulfilling these covenants. But what I was going to say is, through, through Europe, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews were killed for, for, for different reasons. They, they even lost their language and much of their culture through it. But what they didn't lose was this knowledge that all this harm that had been brought to them was supposedly done in the name of Jesus. And what has survived in their culture today is the pain of that. Just like, you know, if you're Native American in this day, you may have lost out on some of your culture. You try to keep it alive, but you know the stories your grandparents told about how they were forced out of their homes and they were forced into schools and orphanages and and how your great-great-grandparents knew that your land had been taken away. Those stories don't die. Well, among the Jews, what's, what's interesting is that all this persecution heaped upon them was generally done supposedly by people in the name of Jesus. But that's the miracle that changes, and that through all that pain and suffering they've experienced, supposedly because of Jesus. You see, today, you go to most Jews who are Orthodox on the street, they don't want to talk to a Gentile because they think, well, this guy hates me because I don't believe in Jesus. That's their preconception. Yeah, right? so even a huge, more of a barrier to try to... Exactly. Mm-hmm. There's even more of a barrier. Even though they've lost their language and had to re- relearn it now in the last century, obviously, they've got it. But they haven't lost that memory of the fact that all this strife that came our way was because of this so-called guy named Jesus. Why would I want anything to do with that? (laughs) And so what's got to happen is exactly what you've said, Mike, is that they've got to see the God that loved them from the beginning. They've got to see that, no, whatever people have said about me was wrong. I want you to know that. I died in an act of mercy for you, and I've always and only loved yeah, you. Yeah, what Nephi says, they, they have to be persuaded. That, that word persuade means there's, there's, a, you know, there's something pulling and tugging and, and coercing and, and, and drawing in, you know, persuading. There's, yeah. there's, a, there's a power there. There's something that's pulling and changing the way to think. And, and, and what that is, I, I think we see, we're starting to see being being lived out. Well, and this comes back to what we said, uh, I think in the previous episode about Lehi is teaching his son about his own people. He said, the Messiah will be manifest to our people in the latter days in the spirit of power, in the spirit of power. So 
What's got to happen is that, you see, this is why it's no program of the church, I don't think, or any of the baggage of the restoration. How can you teach the power of God and his love and his sacrifice for people and at the same time try to explain away polygamy or other other things. It's like, it's not going to happen when the Jews are converted by the power of God. It's it's not going to be happened by the baggage of our mistakes. Right. It's going to be the pure word that returns to them. And they're going to see who Jesus is there. It's not like they're going to see us, see him through the filter of who we think he is. I believe they're going to discover one-on-one directly. I believe these words that we have stumbled over ourselves and rejected, they somehow are going to go back cleanly into their hands and they're going to read them without us trying to tell them what it says. They're going to see who he is for sure. And they're going to know the truth. And this is why Nephi says, I'm writing plain. You're not, you can't mistake what I'm going to tell you is going to happen. They're going to come back to Jesus. Well, Corey, I love, I love what we're headed. You know, what does the book of Mormon teach? That's why we, as you said, it's not going to be the baggage of the story of, the, of it coming forth, but the message. What does it teach? What does it teach? So we continue to focus on what does the Book of Mormon teach and um, where are we going next time? We're going to continue with Second Nephi 11. He hasn't got us uh, the whole story yet, but it's contained in this chapter, and we're going to find out how God brings his people back to him. All right. For those of you that aren't out walking around or traveling when you're listening to this, you're at home, get that Book of Mormon out and follow along. It'll be a little easier. But we will see you in a week. And until then, just remember, we're all here walking each other home. Amen. Amen.